You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, I want to talk about our sponsors, Facebook Design and Abstract. Facebook Design is a proud sponsor of Revision Path. To learn more about how the Facebook design community is designing for human needs at unprecedented scale, please visit facebook.design. This episode is also brought to you by Abstract, design workflow management for modern design teams. Spend less time searching for design files and tracking down feedback, and spend more time focusing on innovation and collaboration. Like a glitch but for designers, Abstract is your team's version-controlled source of truth for design work. With Abstract, you can version sketch design files, present work, request reviews, collect feedback, and give developers direct access to all specs, all from one place. Sign your team up for a free 14-day trial today by heading over to www.abstract.com. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with Adi Malenciano, a Brooklyn-based interdisciplinary artist, designer, creative technologist, researcher, futurist, humanist, and educator. It's a lot. <laughs> Let's start the show. All right. So tell us who you are and what you do. Hi, I'm Adi. I'm a artist, creative technologist, and researcher. Now, for those who are listening who might not be familiar with that term creative technologist, can you... Uh, I guess, unpack that a little bit. Like to you, what is a creative technologist? So a creative technologist is someone that predominantly kind of combines art and technology together to create interactive. Mostly it's mostly computer based work. So it could be exhibition design or building apps or UX and UI doesn't exclusively have to be that, but it, it also incorporates those skills. But people that are generally creating things through electronics for artistic expression. When did you first hear that term? I might have first heard that term while I was in graduate school studying to be a creative technologist. Uh, and so the graduate school that I went to is called Interactive Telecommunications at NYU. And so it's a program that combines art, design, technology, and engineering. And the courses are all surrounding this idea of creative technology. Nice. And now I guess speaking of um, NYU, I know a lot of the things that you're doing right now, which are mostly around education, um, also kind of involve your, your research work at NYU. Can you mm -hmm. talk a little bit about uh, the residency that you have with ITP? Yeah, the residency I just completed, it was uh, offered to me once I had graduated from the program. And so they invite a few students to stay just for an extra year and continue their research and whatever you want to research. And for me, my general interests uh, surrounded ways that I could uh, push the possibilities and boundaries with human computer interactive technologies. And I also wanted to explore ways that society is impacting, is impacted by technology. So considering different ways that social inequities have been replicated through technology. Interesting. I want to also dive a little bit into that. Maybe we can do that a little bit later. Um, you're also teaching at NYU, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. what, are so, what are some of the courses? I'm teaching two classes at NYU. One is in the program that I graduated out of ITP and another one is in the photography department. The course at ITP is one that I developed based on a an ex exhibition by Vitra Design Museum. And so it's called Designing Club Culture. And for me, I wanted to create a course that for one, would bring race and culture into the ITP space. So it very much does that of us. We're thinking about music and its progression from being slave music and lacking a lot of instrumentation because slaves only had what was around them, uh, everyday materials, and then moving from slave music to funk music and then to jazz. Like We're missing some genres, but jazz and then eventually to genre and kind of studying how these genres have all been affected by the society uh, and what was going on at the time around them and what they had access to. And so jazz being a lot like funk music, but really replacing um, words with instrumentation and kind of getting more, uh, becoming trained in European instruments is what 
led a lot to jazz music. And just studying all these different patterns between society and music has been really interesting and kind of sharing it with the students. And then us thinking about club culture and this kind of new life after the Second World War of all this leisure time is now um, available to people and what are they doing with it in the nighttime. And so this club culture has allowed people to explore social experiments. And so they would create these spaces and in some spaces they would say, okay, take all your clothes off and we're going to put these white nightgowns on everyone. And now we're going to like do this collective kind of beat making with a bunch of different instruments or another space might have a, an actual vegetable garden on their floor, but all these different spaces, they're being very experimental and thinking about how can this space impact the people and what are, what's pretty much our subliminal manifesto within this space because the 60s and 70s was so much about protesting and creating communities of people that think similarly for one of the first times in ways that we can get together and celebrate all of our similarities. So a lot of that, a lot of studying and theorizing of what has happened in our country and even outside of it, Italy has been huge in disco Mm -hmm. club culture um, and other spaces, but outside of it, but then also thinking of, okay, well, what technologies do we have now that can reenact kind of what people were doing then and push it much more forward. So teaching a lot of different technologies that allow students to explore audio visual kind of experiments. So we're learning different softwares like Max and Ableton and ways that we can create music, live composed music, and then also have the music conversate with the visuals that are projected in our space. And the students are invited to, as a final project, create a kind of quick club uh, experience for 20 minutes where outside people are invited in and uh, to able to experience it. And then the other course is in the photography department. And that one is called Documenting Downtown with New Media. And so that's photography being very interested, the photography department being very interested in kind of what's going on in the ITP space. And so them wanting to bring the technologies that we're using, uh, a little bit of them into the photography department so students get more acquainted with different uh, softwares and apps. And so we're exploring a lot with AR right now. And my main goal with it is to kind of just push the students in my class to be a lot more creative and think about photography and the way that you compose photographs and exhibit photographs in much more different and more immersive ways. So that it won't just be still images, but sometimes we're exploring with um, moving images or we're developing our own soundscapes or we're creating images all based on the color. So we're doing photo walks and capturing photos where you each photo has a, a certain color and it all is found in all, a collection of photos. But really just practicing a lot more of thinking about the spaces that we're in and having our eyes and ears more open and thinking about ways that we can project these works with the technologies that we have access to today and not being so traditional. The club culture course sounds amazing. I mean, I think just the, I, I mean, I mean, aside from, I think just that final project of like make a club, uh, because I, I think for, and I could be speaking completely out of turn here because I'm old, but I, I feel like people look at clubs as just something to consume and not create. Yeah. And the fact that you're adding this, uh, these rich cultural layers on top of it, showing how the club is not just a place to go, but it's, it's a space that was created out of a certain need and those needs come out of society and economics and, you know, social justice issues and things like that. Uh, Even thinking of like how you said in the sixties and seventies creating those spaces, I feel like uh, that's happening now Mm -hmm. at least in terms of, of protest because of just how society is still really messed up. But yeah, uh, that whole concept of, of centering it around the club and then you're including music and everything in that that sounds i, I want to take that course that sounds really good <laughs> oh, thank you i i was just thank hearing you. a uh, a podcast from a uh from a he's, he's a jazz vocalist his name is gregory porter and he has this podcast called the hang and his recent episode he was talking with giles peterson who heads up well he's a dj but he also does a lot of work with blue note records mm. they're a, a recording label they do a lot of I guess experimental jazz mostly jazz traditional and experimental jazz. Let me clear that up. Um, and they were talking about some of these sort of similar things about sort of the, the cultural space and nuances of music and how that's formed around like DJ sets and clubs and things like that. And it's amazing to think of something that we might perceive as just a recreational activity Mm -hmm. as also just being a like physical and mental space for connection and expression and catharsis and all these other things absolutely yeah so much was going on then yeah 
Yeah, and still now, it's it's funny you mentioned some of these things, and I'm like, we have right, a lot of those thing. things going on right now. They're probably called, well, they are called different things, and I think that may make them, I don't want to say harder to to find, but maybe maybe more difficult to understand because they're called so many different things. Like maybe it's a maker space. Maybe mm. they do call it a club or I know here actually in Atlanta, not too far from me, there's a place called uh, the Met, which has a lot of these similar types of things and they call some of the things they do space labs. And mm-hmm. it's like, if you don't know what the vernacular is, you're like, Oh, what, what is yeah. that? What's a space lab? What is that? <laughs> but it's very similar in what you're saying. Like people are getting together and, you know, making music in real time, but it's also a space just to to be outside of the normal, regular society and everything. Yeah, to be entertained all at once. It's also changing a lot. Like that whole club culture is gone in a lot of ways. The only ways people come together is through festivals. And that's due to uh, like you would go to clubs because the DJ is playing music that you've never heard before or you could only hear if you enter that space. Mm-hmm. So now we have Spotify and Tidal and there's no need to kind of really gather to hear all these music. So it's like finding new spaces for people to congregate. Yeah. It's amazing how much technology has changed Mm -hmm. music in many different ways. Of course, it's changed it for the musician, but also, like you said, for the consumer, you can have all of these streaming services, your entire collection, your favorites, your playlists. It's like, why, why would you need to go out to a club right. where you've got the club in your in your Listen pocket. To it at home. Yeah, yep. exactly. <laughs> in your own comfort. Yeah, and yeah. I didn't even think about that with now people connecting <laughs> through festivals because now I I do have a lot of friends that's they do the festival circuit, especially ones that are like into EDM. Yeah, they'll do the festival circuits. But then even with things like uh, Afropunk yep. or uh, down here we have A3C, which are, are sort of these similar types of. Um, festivals that are have music and they've got panels it's like a whole like multimodal type yeah. of experience of the music yeah definitely <laughs> now you're also doing some consulting on uh curriculum right with the uh, nyc mm-hmm. department of education yeah so they reached out um and have been interested in kind of i mean i just i've always been in the education space for a while and so um they've been looking for ways that the pedagogy that they're teaching um, right now is to mostly sixth graders of the STEAM pedagogy, um, how it could be made more culturally relevant. So the work that I'm doing is considering they have a few main identities, including religion and sexuality and race and nationality and culture and kind of thinking of ways that the work that I'm building can showcase to the students how you can bring your identity and yourself to the work that you're doing and how also you can use technology to be these sort of digital activists, digital citizens, and create experiences for other people to to become more aware. So different projects have included, uh, one of them I've been building is this sort of subway map that shows which lines in New York City are more accessible than, uh, than others. And getting some really surprising data, like the G train is only has one disability, uh, like accessible station out of almost 14 stops. Yeah. So kind of just highlighting what's been going on and showing students examples of how they can be activists, many activists with creative technology. Interesting. What are the challenges with developing curriculum like that for such a, a wide range of students? Um, I think there's, it's a big team, so, uh, or it's not that big, but it is like you're collaborating and you're, we're all remote. Like I get to work on this uh, in my own home. Mm. So I think just being able to figure out, okay, what is the main curriculum designer want within the curriculum? How can I create works around that? But they've also given me so much freedom to really just create whatever I want because they're familiar with my work. So they're just saying, really, we just want your innovation and just create works where you're doing what you've already been doing, but uh, enough for sixth graders. I think the biggest challenge for me is using, because a lot of it is on Scratch, and I'm so used to text-based coding and not block-based coding, Mm -hmm. and Scratch is very, very limiting. So it's been a lot to just learn how to use that and be able to express myself fully in ways that I'm able to with other programming languages. Well, and this is, I guess, sort of a, a plug here, but uh, if you've heard of Glitch, yeah, that's it might want to <laughs> might want to look might want to look into it. It's it's kind of a more, I think, well featured like IDE, just in terms of being able to easily sign up for an account, get started, yeah. do peer collaboration, and uh, 
and things like that. So if you're interested, I can certainly I can put you in touch with some <laughs> people. But no, just... I've, I've actually been using it. Yeah, it's just like what's what's easy enough for sixth graders to understand because glitch is great. And I've said it so many times to them, suggested so many times. But I think it's also just the glitch is very similar to like P5, where it's you have the code and mm-hmm. sixth graders are still learning how to code. So it's what's the simplest way to get all of it across to them? Right, right. Yeah. Now, you've created one of your most well-known projects while you were at NYU, which is uh, Afrotectopia. For our audience, can you talk a little bit about sort of how you got the idea for that and really just just what it is? Yeah. So um, Afrotectopia, it stemmed very much out of a personal experience. I mean, me entering ITP uh, when I did was really one of my first times in a tech oriented space. I didn't, I wasn't a technologist before that. I was an artist. I always grew up as an artist. Um, so being in that space and getting exposed to so many amazing ways of pushing my art forward in directions I would have never even imagined in months prior was very exciting. Um, and so learning all these technologies, I got really excited, but then I'm thinking about how I'm going back home after I create different things. Like I created a camera while I was there and other products and designs and my friends at home being excited about it, but them telling me that they don't think that they could do these kind of things really frustrated me because I'm in a space that really the only difference between where I grew up and NYU is just the access to the technologies and softwares and teaching and training to use these things. And as I got more ingrained in it, I'm realizing this stuff is not difficult at all. Like it it has a learning curve, but once you get in there, it's very much, it's very easy to really just put pieces together, a lot of creative technology. I don't mean to simplify it and make it look a lot easier than it is, but in some cases, a lot of it is just putting these technologies that have already been developed by other people together in strategic ways to create your own things. Like sometimes it can be as simple as that. So learning how all this tech worked and learning all the possibilities, I was very excited, but also disappointed that my friends, for one, felt like they couldn't do it and that they also just didn't have access to it because I know if they had access to it, they would be creating amazing things as well. So that was a frustration for me. And then navigating my program, it just wasn't, it still isn't very racially diverse. And so that was frustrating for me and being the only black student in my class and, um, saying, well, you know, if we're using these technologies in this way, it's not going to serve our community in the best way. So maybe we should be more mindful and just just constantly having to be in a space of educating what's actually going on outside of ITP doors and literally what's actually going on right outside ITP doors because Lower East, where we are, is a very black and Latino space. So it's it just felt like there was just such a disconnect between what's going on actually in society and what's going on within these programs, tech programs that are teaching Um, And then also just not having a community of people to be mentored by and mentor and learn from and learn with. And um, I was creating a lot of work that was considering race and critical race theory and justice and all of these different things. But it it felt very siloed. Like I didn't really have people to bounce ideas off of with or to get get feedback from people that actually understood what was going on. Um, So I wanted to tackle a lot of these different things in a space, in a community, build a community of people that are that I that we don't have to educate about race before we jump into tech and where race is not absent of conversations around surrounding tech and it's more of it's centered in the tech conversations. And we're able to just see each other's work for one and just like get to know each other and build with each other and celebrate the pioneers that have been doing this kind of work. So the first one happened while I was still a graduate student, also completing my thesis project in March 2018. And ITP NYU was very supportive in helping realize it and giving us the space and resources that we needed to produce it. And the first one, it really created a big buzz around New York City of people are interested in having this kind of environment where they can enter and be Black and also in a tech space and not feel like they're going to be the only ones when attending or like the tech conversations are going to be completely dismissive of their culture. So it was around a couple hundred people that came and it sold out quickly. And the things that we were discussing were very much ways that we can use technology to eradicate a lot of the racial disparities that are happening today and how we can better set up our future. And so that was really exciting. And then the second one happened uh, about a month ago and Google hosted us at this one and was really even more exciting for me because I've been studying a lot about pedagogy of just being an educator and also studying the way that communities are developed. And with pedagogy, I've been thinking about ways because generally for me, I just don't like being on panels at all. And I don't really like attending panels because 
it doesn't feel like it's the most conducive way to learning. It feels very much like you have a few selected expertise, quote unquote expertise to share their work, which is great. It's always great to learn about people, but then it's, it's so hard to get to know who else is in the room and what they know. Yeah. And I feel like there's just so much intelligence within spaces. And so, especially when people are congregating around a certain issue, they're all bringing in so many different uh, levels of expertise and ranges and lenses. So for me, I wanted to get out of that um, whole hierarchical approach within pedagogy of top down and be more horizontal and invite more voices to the table, as many as possible. So the framework of the festival was very much not having any panels, but much more of doing these things called collective conversations. So I would invite a few people, selectively invite a few people to kind of just come share their work just so we can get things started and kind of develop a theme within the conversation. But then everyone else would have opportunity to talk about how they relate to that work or that theme or just like moderate each other and creating a conversation. And then other ways would be through workshops and performances. And the way that Aftertopia has been designed as it's very much sort of like an intellectual festival of we're learning, but we're also having a lot of fun. So we're dancing and being entertained and um, seeing a lot of different forms of art. And also, as I mentioned earlier, of just like, how are you building your community? And I've had conversations with people, um, making sure that I'm aware of how I'm doing it or just like reminding me of the importance of it. And one way that was brought to my attention was what you're building your, your community off of. And so the difference between the last one and this most recent one was was this my, the headspace that I was in mm-hmm. of me being this artist that's as I entered NYU, that's really the time that I was becoming a lot more aware of the racial dynamics within the country because I'm coming from a space that's predominantly black, but it's also a predominantly black space that's pretty well off. So we're not, we don't understand the racial dynamics of the country in the same way that people in other more less accessible areas would experience. And so that kind of spoiled black experience in a way blinded us a lot, but it was also countrywide. The the country was blind to a lot of racial dynamics because we had, we were thinking that we were living in a post-racial society with Obama, but mm-hmm. the change of presidency kind of, it woke a lot of us up. And though, though black people were always aware of the racism, it, it woke us up even more, I think, to just like what's actually going on and people just being openly racist um, in ways that we hadn't experienced in, in media. So I think just that shift also woke me up a lot in thinking about what's going on here and how can I use my privilege of being an NYU student and having access to all this space to make sure that everyone around me is as aware as I am. And so I think that speaks a lot to your question of what got me into even just technology and considering that as a tool to be more culturally uh, or like racially active and as a sort of racial activist in a way. Yeah. Um, I think it's kind of just where I was at the time of just, I happened to be in the tech space and learning about all these things and doing a lot of my own research on critical race theory and just generally what's going on and thinking that, okay, well, if I'm in this space and using all these technologies that are becoming more and more relevant to everyday lives, how can I make sure that people are aware of the ways that we're using it to, you know, further oppress other groups of people. So all of that to say, to come back to Aftertopia, that the shift changed from being this person that wanted to use, constantly use technology for race uh, and racial justice, to then also being this person that wants to consider the future. And if we're, I had a conversation with a friend, Rashida Jones, who told me, or Rashida Richardson, who uh, mentioned to me that we are doing a great job of being in the streets and protesting, but we don't really have exact visions of the future and kind of what are we protesting for? Mm -hmm. And so her saying that to me really created a sort of paradigm shift for me of that's true. And it's also something I really want to get to even more of just developing these visions for how our standards of living could be and what we should be fighting for so that people in the streets have something to fight for. And so we can be very specific when the time comes where people are asking, okay, well, what is it that you want? And we can very clearly uh, express that. So that shift also translated into the second Aftertopia of it was a space where we weren't, our foundation of the community was shifting from being a space that's uh, surrounding these ideas of whiteness and ways that whiteness can be very destructive to humanity and instead shifting to all the intelligence that's inherent of blackness and centering our own greatness and learning about our own history and how we'll use all of this intelligence and cultural memory that we have innate in ourselves to build these futures, speculative futures that would be very healthy for all of us. Whew. Yeah, I, I love that idea of going from a speculative future to a 
to an actual future to a reality um yeah i i wow there's there's so much that you said there that i want to unpack and i i'm also thinking of that in context of the fact that both of us just recently attended uh black and design the the 2019 black and design conference and their whole theme was about black futurism and it had panels Mm -hmm. about you know sort of like creating spaces for for joy and how we use technology and design to sort of craft this future for ourselves i like that idea of having collective conversations when it comes to these types of topics because i feel that the past i don't know maybe like five to seven years has really galvanized a lot of people in different ways Mm -hmm. largely because of things which have happened in society and there are people that will say that you know technology is the reason that a lot of this has even started to really galvanize people like when you think about for example michael brown in ferguson from there there was this preponderance now of police forces using body cams Mm. so the plus side is that we now have this footage that is showing you know these sort of acts as they happen the downside is now we have footage of these acts as they're happening because yeah. it's it it one it can galvanize people but then it also can be a form of trauma just depending yeah. on how people circulate it and use it and and all that sort of stuff so yeah i mean it it also serves as just a way to numb people like we're seeing this back to back to back and it just it's not really um riling people up as much as it has been before when it was first being released. And it's also like, it, it, it seems like it's kind of coming out of like police are all of a sudden becoming this way for some people. But I was just reading a, this book on Basquiat and his work with his painting called Defacement. And it was around the time in the eighties when this police officer or several police officers murdered uh, one of the artists. Prom- not He wasn't even prominent at the time. He was just an artist that Basquiat and other artists in that area, Lower East Side, knew and how much that affected them and how a lot of it, that that um, killing in itself really woke up the Lower East Side as far as white people didn't realize that them getting off by the police was designed, were, was really racially motivated and how their black friends would actually be the ones that are getting locked up or getting killed. Um, just that happening mm-hmm. woke the people up at that time and not that not being able to be documented by social media and all of that. Now we're able to document it and people are seeing it much more consistently. And in, in the beginning, it was great because people felt like, oh, this is happening. We need to fight it, which is exactly what we should be doing. But then it becomes so prevalent. It's just like you're scrolling through your Twitter feed and you're seeing another person die. Okay, and then another person dies, and yeah, um, it's definitely creating a sort of stagnancy that's not good for our society. And and it's funny, I'm thinking of that. Well, not funny, but I'm, I'm thinking of that. And there was a lot of art that had came out around that incident. I think it was around the time of of uh, Basquiat doing the defacement piece. I know Andy Warhol did a print. Um, I think Keith Haring Keith also Haring did something. Did, yeah. And something that I've been hearing. I don't want to say fairly recently. I'd say certainly since, like I said, the past five to seven years is how more designers should be using their work as ways to kind of speak to what's happening in society and not just about, and not saying that you can't just also talk about tech topics like, you know, browser issues or stuff like that, but then also how are you using your work outside of this just strictly technological space in order to help impact the community around you and everything and one thing that i can see from your work is that it exists at a lot of different intersections it's art it's design it's tech it's uh digital activism it's race it's culture all these different things pedagogy you know speculative design all this stuff with all these topics how do you make sure that your work kind of reaches as many of these areas as possible Um, I think you're bringing up something that I'm thinking about a lot of just what are we using our art for? And I've had conversations with people that have kind of brought two things. um, Not one was in a conversation. One was just reading and the other one was a conversation. And one of them was what would black people, I was having a conversation with someone who said, what would black people be doing if we didn't have to create things about race? Mm. And then another one, yeah, and that mm. really stuck with me. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. yeah, wow. And then another <laughs> one was um, Toni Morrison's quote of racism is distraction. And like, no yeah. matter what yeah. you do, there's always going to be something to prove. And so those things have really shifted me um, 
have really just like opened me up in ways that I'm very thankful for. Um, and my trajectory into ITP, I said before of, and I may not have elaborated on of, I entered as an artist who was not focused on my cultural or racial identity at all. I just wanted to create beautiful things and use art for aesthetics and um, create fun experiences for people and leave people in awe in some way. And so entering ITP, my work and all the research that I was doing while there, it became, it just uh, was swallowed up by all the racial dynamics in the country and all the work that I was doing, critical race theory, all of that just seeped into everything that I did. And that was really inspiring for me in some ways, but then it also became extremely exhausting because I'm no longer what I have always been of just this artist that loves to just create, but now I'm making sure that all of my work is speaking to society in a way that is more accepted. And I also had the mentality of we as black people should be creating work that is advancing our community always. But that sort of trajectory is very exhausting and we're losing a lot of innovation and creativity that could exist if we weren't focused on proving to people and educating people and all the things that Mm -hmm. is going on that's wrong. So My idea of that has been, uh, it's been going back and forth. And right now I've been in a space where I'm really trying to get myself away from having my work. And it's also like, it's just generally my interest. Like I love black culture and I love just celebrating it and learning about it. But I also need to be careful that I'm not continuing to put myself in spaces where I feel like I need to be a spokesperson or need Mm -hmm, to educate mm -hmm. um, or use my work in ways that like grants will fund. It's so easy to get grants based off of, you know, social justice work. And it's very hard to get grants off of your own personal interests. So I'm trying to Mm -hmm. figure out ways to just be an artist that can remove herself more and make go back to creating art. And I feel like all Black people have that, should have that ability to create work that doesn't speak to exactly progressing the community in traditional ways, but you being joyous and an artist and exploring your creativity as a Black person is progressing us in ways that aren't direct and aren't... um, you know, more accepted, but it is doing it. And it's also healthy for yourself. You have to sustain your, your own artistic soul. So I'm kind of battling and going back and forth of thinking about that and also being very critical of, um, and thinking, just thinking about the quote I mentioned to you and what the person said to me of making sure that I give people space to do that as well, black people. And that's, that was a, that also contributed to the shift in the second year of, it was also about us just designing and being creative and not entirely centering racial justice in every conversation that we had. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that boundary making is ever present. I feel like that's mm-hmm. something that black creators, particularly particularly ones that have work that tends to be focused around black culture and black people. It's a constant shifting of boundaries. Sometimes those yeah. boundaries are very permanent and concrete. Some boundaries are a bit more porous. I know for me, like in the past few years, I've had to be very strict about this is what I will do. This is what I won't do. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting how that ends up being perceived as being like bossy or or, you know, Mm. or difficult to work with when it's more so about preserving like my energy and making sure that I'm giving myself enough mental space to just be able to give my best to give my best self to the work, because to me, at the end of the day, it's it's about the work. Exactly. Um, if the work is not there, then it can't speak to the issues that I want the work to speak to. And so, like, I tell people, like, I don't I don't speak at conferences. Um, yeah. Largely because conferences can be a pain in the ass to deal with. But <laughs> yeah. also, I just don't because there's so much mental energy that you have to exert between going back and forth with conference organizers and they have to get the hotel together and they have to get the travel mm-hmm. together and then you got to get all that and they want to have your presentation three weeks in advance when I may still be yeah. thinking about how I'm putting exactly. this all together and may not have it together until the day that I have to give it exactly and they want you to give a run through of it and it's like oh my god like, why are you putting all this structure not to say that structure is a bad thing but you're putting the structure around something which to me is still a forming idea like even when i think of revision path it's been around for a while but i feel like it's still growing and changing based on just the reality of where we are in the industry as black people Mm -hmm. um and so i've I've told people like yeah i don't speak at conferences i'll speak at your school like Mm -hmm. to your k through 12 to your college students i'll do that because i feel like those are spaces where conversation can happen where the next generation can be inspired 
Whereas conferences are kind of just like spring break for people that have an expense budget. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, I, I could be completely off for other people. Oh, that are listening, yeah, but I, get that. <laughs> I, I, go, I go to conferences to to network. I don't really want to go there to just like speak and get my my profile up. Like, I mean, not, not to say that's a bad thing, but yeah. I want the work to speak for itself. Mm-hmm. And I need to be able to give, you know, boundaries to that kind of stuff. But, yeah, it can be exhausting. For you, how do you make those areas? How do you make those boundaries? Like, what are you what are you doing for self care to make sure that the work doesn't overwhelm you in that way? Um, and I also just want to point out that it is a balance. Like with everything that I've said, it's a balance. It's not like me yeah. moving from one space to another and completely closing the door on the past space. Like um, creating spaces for both people to protest in the street and to create the future. Both, because both are necessary, and creating spaces for people to use their art for social justice because that's very necessary, and also creating spaces for people to use art for their own fulfillment um, in ways that might not be directly social justice or racial justice. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, I think it's definitely been a challenge of, um, like, even mentioning to you that I don't like panels, but still, I still have a, a few more lined up for October. So it's like, um, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, it's. I've also see the benefit in it because for one, people are getting to know the work better and being in a panel and the conversations can be good. It's just for me, I know that in the spaces that I develop that they won't have panels. That's just not what I want. Mm-hmm. Um, but respecting that other people are have di- their own interests and see their own gains out of different things. So it's not like this pure binary kind of thing, but also just saying generally no more. And that's something that I'm not very good at. And I just had to like, send a few emails of saying, you know, I just don't have the bandwidth to do this and I'm going to have to remove myself. I think generally I always like, if I see a good opportunity, I'm like, yes, yes, yes. And then my plate gets way too filled and I'm just exhausted. So I think practicing this idea of no and moving slower is something that I'm really trying to, you know, generally just work on and explore ways that I can do and still feel excited about the work that I am doing. And also just creating works for different needs. So as I mentioned earlier, like it's so easy to get grants off of saying, oh, yeah, I'm making a work about racial justice and this and this is what I'm exploring, yada, yada. Because I feel like the people that are giving the grants are generally white people who are very interested in learning this kind of stuff. But it's things that we are very well versed in as black people. So I don't want to continue repeating myself in these different forms for money. So it's me thinking of different ways to sustain my art um, and create works that are not for, like I, it was very easy for me to just like constantly, the work that I was creating was based off of the money that I was getting from different opportunities. And so now it's been much more of taking a step back and really developing my own projects first and then finding a space that they'll sit in well and presenting them in that form. So it's been a juggling, a lot of different things to figure out. Yeah. And I guess speaking of of some of those own projects, as I was doing my research, I saw that you are a YouTuber also. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you got videos where you're you're like teaching coding via p5.js. You're yeah. doing these like dope musical experiences with uh, like I think I saw a, the OP1 from yep. Teenage Engineering <laughs> in one of the videos. Why? Well, one, why did you start doing videos? And two, I'd love to get more into like the sound design sort of stuff that you're doing, because that's really interesting to me. Well, I started creating videos because it was around the time that I had finished a year at ITP. And I'm really excited about all the things that I'm learning, but also so frustrated with the lack of racial diversity within generally the tech space. Um, And so for me, it became I was also doing a lot more representational projects and understanding that the fact that I may have not considered myself uh, ever capable of being, because before entering ITP, I never saw myself as being like a computer scientist or engineer in any way. And me realizing that a lot of that was also contributed by the fact that I just never saw people that look like me doing this kind of things. Like I never saw a black girl, Latina girl, considering creative technology and doing this kind of work. And if I had, how much that would have shifted my mindset and thinking of myself as capable. So I wanted to be, use myself as a sort of representational tool for other people to be able to see themselves and see that creative technology is not just like this white man's game, but it's something that so many of us can do and bring our, whether we want to bring our own culture in or not, or we can, we just have the ability to do it. So for me, it was also, it was a big part of that. And also just democratizing education because NYU is just so expensive and exclusive. And so how can I 
bring all the things that I'm learning out to people that are interested in learning it too, but just can't cough up the money to attend or put themselves in that position, how can we all kind of grow together? And so that was the idea behind the YouTube series of just creating these videos that give very foundational skills and using P5 and coding and ways to solder and engineer enough for them to be able to build on top of and take it in directions that they want to, but at least getting the access um, to do it. And I haven't really kept it up because for me, I've just kind of gotten tired of being in front of a camera and want to just take a break. And um, I think I might just be good on those videos and kind of leave it at that, though. There's so many things I would love to teach. It's just thinking of the right frame and how to do it. And you had another question oh, about the sound oh, design. Yeah, yeah. 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 And so for me, I've loved, I grew up loving music. I would create my own beats as a kid um, with GarageBand. And then I started to DJ in high school and college and in getting into, or not high school, in college uh, and afterwards. And so getting more into DJing and just loving sounds and mixing sounds, I eventually bought like this mixer that wasn't really about turntable DJing, but more about going into the sounds and mixing different parts of the sounds. And so I've just found myself getting more and more interested in every element of sound, like the psychoacoustics and different drum machines and sequencing and um, relation, just different ways of technology kind of expanding the possibilities of music and sound design. And so getting very into that and then also just having a a, a, a strong inclination towards or just like drawing towards um, beautiful machines. Sound machines can be really fun and beautiful. And you mentioned the Teenage Engineering OP1, and that was the first sound machine that I ever bought um, and just loving mm -hmm. the way that it looked for one and how you could really get into all these different elements of sound synthesis. Um, yeah. yeah, just getting getting more and more into that. And so now I've been building my library of machines, of doing these live um, compositions, using a bunch of different machines and having them talk to each other, and then also doing more um, experiments with modular synthesizers and kind of building my own synthesizer set. And really, for one, it's like kind of just an explore, exploration in the potentials of sound and bringing in sounds, but also thinking about sound structure. And like with the modular synthesizer, I can do these sort of Euclidean pattern making that's very similar to like African drum patterns and thinking of the history of music and techno and how thinking about cultural memory and the ways that we've constructed music historically as black people, I like to consider ways that I could do that with these new technologies and it being this sort of relationship between the uh, organic kind of forms of music historically within African culture and black culture, and then mm -hmm. moving it into these advanced technologies, similar to how techno was doing, but even further with modular synthesizers has just been something I've been so fascinated with and practicing a lot lately. Yeah, I, I'm really interested in sound design, I think, one, from just the the practical level of being a podcaster, and I work yeah. with sound a lot, but mm -hmm. before I got into any of this design and tech stuff, I was a musician for a lot oh, of years. Wow. Um, I, I mean, if you want to call it a musician, I was playing in, like, middle school and high school. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, like, I, I also, during that time, learned about how to compose and write music from technology from video games mm -hmm. uh i was i was relaying the story actually over the weekend about how final fantasy 4 is what taught me how to be a musician mm -hmm. like i got into the story and the characters and the music it uh just the combination of all of it swept me up to the point where i was learning I was learning music on my own and wow. I think my mom saw that and then was like, Oh, I need to put him into like a music program. Cause this is, I had like, and this, now I grew up in like the deep South rural country. So there's no oh. big, like <laughs> you said, Oh, <laughs> yeah, but, there's, but there's no, like, no, 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 no. But there's no like big uh, tech centers or even yeah. honestly possibilities of that sort of stuff. So I remember I had one of these little like, ten dollar recorder things that i got from i don't know like family dollar or something and i would literally have it up to the screen while the music is playing record it play it back on my little keyboard that had like 32 keys and could barely you know like not a real keyboard but like mm -hmm. trying to transpose the music as i'm listening to it and my mom is like oh wow huh i should get him yeah. into that and so i started I was playing to ask how are you showing that so your mom could see it Wow. Oh, I would, yeah, I would show it to her so she could see it and I would, I would play it on the keyboard. And so she's like, oh, I want to get you into like, 
a music program. So I started off playing trombone in seventh grade. I, I initially wanted to start with trumpet and like the band uh, director had this thing where the, he'd want you to try out every instrument to see which one felt the most natural to you. And the trombone mm. was the most natural. So I played it from seventh grade all the way up through really after I graduated college because I played all through middle school, all through high school and not just like marching band stuff, but marching band, symphonic band. Um, I joined my local community college's jazz band when I was in Mm. like 10th grade. And so then that's like exposing to a different level of the work because in marching band, we were mostly like transposing popular music. Like we were playing this is how we do it and water mm-hmm. runs dry and my boo, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. we're playing that on the field. And then I yeah. go to my jazz band practice and we're playing Birdland and a night in Tunisia. And we're mm-hmm. playing also like old rock from like blood, sweat and tears and stuff. So I got this really rich musical education and like that got me into the jazz music. I was able to take over to marching band and then make compositions for my section because I was section leader, make compositions for us to play in the stands and on the field based mm-hmm. off of what I was learning here. So I, I, I get that sense of like the sort of, I don't know, kind of how technology has helped with music creation and things like that. So um, I'm interested now in getting into it because I want to get back to those roots a bit yeah. and start creating and making more things. Um so yeah, no, if you this ever is. Need suggestions, please hit me oh, up. Oh, <laughs> I, I absolutely will. Yeah. yeah. Um, I want to switch gears here a little bit because you've talked a lot about you know growing up as an artist and and everything like that. So I'm curious to know kind of like what what was your childhood like and and sort of how what shaped you to where you are now? Like experiences? Did you have people that like inspired you? Things like that. Um, my childhood it started off moving a lot. So I was born in Miami and then we went to. New York City and then Albany and then finally arrived. I grew up in uh, Maryland, D.C. area, which is um, pretty suburban, but it's also pretty metropolitan. Like it's a metropolitan area of D.C. So we have access to the city and it's a very city life, but just around houses. Um, So that was my upbringing and then just loving for me. I don't know. I just like putting the pencil down never stopped. Like I never did that. I always would create with anything around me and it was very much um, like a fine art kind of creating as we are, as we do as kids of just like, um, painting and, um, I would make clothes, like just hand sew things together, really any way that I could possibly design things. Mm -hmm. And I always wanted my own laptop. And finally we got a household computer. And with that computer, I would create like music, like using GarageBand, I would create short films in middle school. I love just like creating in any form. And so I think just I also would study the works of architects. I love architecture because Mm. um, you're creating these really beautiful, ideally beautiful spaces that people are interacting with every single day. And for me, that became, it's it's always been important of what can I do that's enhancing the everyday life of everyone or as many people as possible. Mm. And so architecture became this big thing. And I've, I've always wanted to be an architect. I still do. And I also read a article when I was in middle school of Steve Jobs and his work with uh, industrial design. And though he wasn't the industrial designer, the way that he was thinking about his products with Apple of being these tools and realizing that they're these tool, tools that everyone uses every day. And he's thinking very viscerally in a way of how these tools are being communicated to other people and how they're allowing other people to realize their own artistry and how these tools are beautiful in the way that they're designed, aesthetically pleasing and engaging to use. All these things really inspired me of how can I do these kind of professions within whatever space that I'm in? So with the art that I create, it's usually the art that I'm creating is almost always functional. If it's not just purely something to look at, it's more of, it's a fun thing to use. It's functional and it's also an art piece in itself. So one of the projects that I, that I created while at ITP was I built my own line of cameras and mm. it being in a similar thread of the jo- the mentality of Steve Jobs of creating an object that people can use, but it's also pleasantly pleasant to look at. So these cameras were colorful and they were a different shape than they weren't rectangular as most cameras, but several more different sides and different colors and use all these different fun materials that and thinking of if we're going to 
do photography, why not it be something that's part of our wardrobe, but like something complementary to our outfit since we're going to wear it. Mm -hmm. So thinking about that, and it was also a camera that merged a lot of different forms of photography from digital photography and it being convenient um, and easy to access and cheap because you don't have to pay for the films to get developed to then moving to also mimicking the experience of film photography and it being this tool that makes experimental in the way that film photography can be of just like, you never know, you don't know if you're going to get a light leak in it, if you're using a cheaper camera or if it's going to have a lot of grain and kind of bringing the bridging the best of both worlds in those different photography mediums and creating this camera that operates digitally, but mimics the film experience and also is a complementary to uh, someone's wardrobe. So that was, that was just me of just loving art and ways that, and really being very drawn to architecture and industrial design, but not really knowing how to get into that kind of space, Mm -hmm. but finding creative technology as a beautiful way to just push the possibilities of all my artistic ideas forward in ways that I wouldn't have imagined possible before. Who are some of the people that inspire you to like keep going with all this? Cause it's sound, I mean, and I don't say this to say that it's overwhelming, but it certainly sounds like, again, these are like a lot of topics that you're, you're dealing with and you're working across many different modes of expression. Who inspires you to, to continue and to keep creating? Um, It's definitely not like one person that's doing things that I'm looking at. I'm just inspired by so many different people. But I think the, for me, I grew up always being told, like I grew up with with a lot of different interests. I grew up always playing sports and always on a basketball team or track team, always playing a sport in high school and tennis and wanting to be in the school plays. And it would always be people telling me you're doing too much, like you need to pick something. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I would hear that all the time and would get discouraged by how I was operating of just having all these different interests. But then I went to, while I was in studying abroad in Barcelona, Spain, and we took a trip to Salvador Dali's museum in Teatro Spain. And I was so like fascinated, just completely inspired by the fact that he had designed this museum to hold his work. And then inside the museum, you would go through all the different hallways and see all these different works. And you would think that it's a collection of different artists that are presenting their work, but it's really mostly Salvador Dali and his artistic style is just so different moving from piece to piece. Um, And so that really inspired me and knowing that there were people out there that weren't letting people put these boundaries on their work and that they were approaching every part of design in any way that they wanted to. And so that kind of just gave me a little more permission to continue being this way of like, even with Afrotectopia, it's not just the conference that I'm designing as far as like who's speaking, but it's also in what form are we speaking? How is pedagogy being experienced? What's the branding like? Like what's every part of the experience what all of that is like. And it's kind of just like a big art project. Mm -hmm. So I think just having, being able to find lights like Savra Dali, who was pushing themselves in ways that a lot of people were saying, no, you need to confine yourself was very inspiring for me. What is every part of the experience like? I love that. That's (laughs) that's really great. So we've touched on this, I think several times throughout this conversation, like between Afrotectopia and your other projects, that certainly the work around blackness and culture and racial justice sort of within the tech space is very important. And it seems like ITP was a really pivotal part of you seeing that this is something that you could do in the tech space. Yeah, I'm curious, and I don't know if this is something you've thought about, but I'm curious, if you wouldn't have went to ITP, do you think uh, you would have manifested this in some other way? I don't think so, which is crazy. I don't know what my life would have been like without ITP. ITP completely transformed my entire trajectory. I think I, I always wanted to get in the space, and I was kind of becoming more involved in people with people that were doing this, like creative tech and lighting design. But still, I never felt capable myself of being able to do it. And even the camera project, like I tried to do that before I entered ITP and was asking someone else to help me build it. And it was taking forever. Like it never happened. And so being at ITP, I was able to do it myself. And I also think that's something I've been thinking a lot about as far as like collaboration, because most of the work that I've been doing is very siloed of me kind of just like doing it by myself and learning all the different skills necessary to do it as opposed to collaborating with different people and building mm-hmm. it. And I think it it's great. Both approaches are great, but I feel like the idea of not collaborating um, can be very stigmatized negatively. And it's something I'm trying to like collaborating. I know is very important and something I always try to engage with in different ways. But I also think that 
not collaborating and attempting to learn the different skills yourself so that you don't need help and don't need to rely on other people is something that I generally try and practice and have found it to be, you know, really helpful. So that's also something I wanted to touch on. Now with all these amazing, you know, projects and works that you've created, do you have like a dream project that you'd love to do one day if you had the the access and the funds and the time, what you would create? Like what that would be? It definitely wouldn't just be one. <laughs> there are a lot of dreams. I don't know what, I haven't been able to think that far in a while of like a ideal project, but definitely having just like a, a sort of studio and building out of it and staying in there all day and reading books and creating at night would be a dream. Yeah. What are you most excited about right now? Um, most excited about, or probably I have a stack of books that I've been trying to get you to read. So getting through those. <laughs> <laughs> so with all of this that, that you're doing, I'm curious, what does success look like for you? Have you, is that something that you've thought about with all this? Um, yeah. And I think it's changed as, as people get older, you kind of realign your values and reassess your values. Um, and yeah. success for me is very much like there are a lot of things that I'm very passionate about and excited about doing, but I think I feel the most successful when those things are done and I'm able to just find moments of quiet and stillness and just like take a break for a while. And I was just watching a video um, on YouTube of the author of, I think it's like key to, I don't know, something about stillness and just like we're constantly moving and we have these projects like even completing Aftertopia. It's like you complete it and now you're on to thinking about the next one. And mm-hmm. for me, I'm for me, success is having that just like uh, downtime, that peace to not think about anything at all. And just like, just relax and be still and kind of just like create things completely for my own benefit, not to show anyone or anything. I think the book, uh, are you talking about stillness is the key? Yes, that one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think someone mentioned that at, at work to me like a few days ago or something. Oh, so really? I, that that was a yeah. uh, top of mind there. So with all of this, I'm curious what, or or I say, where do you see yourself in the next, let's say, five years? Like it's it's 2025. Wow, that's that's wild to think about. It's yeah. 2025. <laughs> what is Adi working on? Um. I think Afrotopia should definitely still be around of building that out. I mean, this past year we piloted a summer camp. So having that expand to not being um, just the pilot program, but this maybe nationwide um, after school activity thing or summer thing. Um, so kind of that happening more Afrotopia expanding to be something that's not centrally located in New York city, but something that's international. But then also me and my own work, I love being in academic spaces and academia. So it would be great to be a professor and to also be back in school and learning myself. I think that would just be, I could see that in five years. Nice. Well, just to wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and your work and your projects and everything online? I'm Adi Siano is where all of my stuff is located, A-R-I-C-I-A-N-O.com for my website, and then A-R-I-C-I-A-N-O on Instagram and Twitter. All right. Sounds good. Well, Adi Malenciano, it has been a pleasure to have you here on the show. Thank you really so much for not just, I think, talking about, you know, sort of where you came from and, and how the work inspires you, but just even really for for doing the work yeah. there are a lot of gems here i think you know certainly one thing about like what are we using our art for but even just the notion of being able to take the work that we're doing you know as designers as illustrators or whomever is is listening to this show of course with the intersection of technology and finding ways to improve society improve culture and and make these spaces for us to be i think is something that is is really important i'm i'm still super inspired by black and design and and where black people are in the future. And I feel like you are one of the vanguards that is really shepherding that movement. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I always appreciate it. (laughs) Thank you, Maurice. Thoughts of love are in your mind. And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Adi Malenciano and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Audie and her work through the links in the show notes at glitch.com forward slash revision path. And of course, thanks to both Facebook Design and Abstract. 
Facebook Design, as you know, is a proud sponsor of Revision Path. To learn more about how the Facebook Design community is designing for human needs at unprecedented scale, please visit facebook.design. This episode is also brought to you by Abstract, design workflow management for modern design teams. Spend less time searching for design files and tracking down feedback and spend more time focusing on innovation and collaboration. It's like Glitch, but for designers, Abstract is your team's version-controlled source of truth for design work. With Abstract, you can version sketch design files, present work, request reviews, collect feedback, and give developers direct access to all specs all from one place. Sign your team up for a free 14-day trial today by heading over to www.abstract.com. Revision Path is a Glitch Media Network podcast and is produced by Maurice Cherry and edited by Brittany Brown. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. We're also powered by Simplecast, which is the easiest way for podcasters to publish and distribute audio on the internet. Make sure you check out the show notes for a link to sign up for a 14-day free trial. And if you like this episode, then let more people know about it by leaving us a rating and a review over on Apple Podcasts. It only takes about a minute or so to do, but it really helps spread the word about Revision Path worldwide. You can also find us on Spotify, we're on Google Podcasts, we're on SoundCloud, we're on Pandora, pretty much anywhere you can find your favorite shows. And make sure you're following us on social media as well. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for Revision Path. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.